Support for An Honest Account comes from Open Money, who are making financial advice affordable and accessible to everyone. Open Money offer personalised financial advice online by asking you a few questions and telling you about the next steps for your money. That could be working down debt, saving a cash buffer or investing. Then they give you the tools and advice to help you move forward with your finances through their app and online portal. If investing is the right move for you, they'll give you investment advice and the option to speak to a qualified financial advisor. You can begin with as little as £1. Their low annual fees means you can keep more of your money. You can download the app today or head to open-money.co.uk for more details. And please remember that with all investing, the value can go down as well as up. And thanks to Open Money. about how money affects our lives, our work, health, relationships, and more. Iona Bain is a very familiar name in the finance world. She started the Young Money blog in 2011 and has built up her business and her brand since, creating the Young Money Agency, empowering young people to know more about their finances. She now regularly appears on TV, radio, and writes for magazines and papers. She also speaks all over the UK and internationally, is the author of Spare Change, How to Save More, Budget, and Be Happy with Your Finances. She has a new book out this year about investing. I asked Iona how she built her business, what has she learned about money along the way, and how hard is it to avoid working for free? Iona, thank you so much for joining me amid the storm and trains from Edinburgh and what else you've been doing. Well, that just shows the lengths I'll go to to join (laughs) you, Rachel. Exactly, and I'm so grateful, so grateful. Because we've known each other for a while. Back when we were um, working, well, at, I guess, trade magazines. That's right. And you started your blog, it must have been 2011, so before we met. Mm -hmm. But you were working away behind the scenes, so you must have had... Um, compared to me, like a quite sharp focus on what your career, what career you were going to take. So certainly at that age, I wasn't quite sure I fell into finance. Me too. Right. Yes. Um, It may have looked very predetermined from the outside, but it definitely wasn't. Actually, it's only been in the last few years that the blog has really taken off. Um, And up to that point, I was working in financial media and I thought I was going to be a more conventional financial journalist. And it was only when suddenly there was this huge interest in young personal finance. And, you know, that meant a a much greater interest in the Young Money blog that um, I then realised, actually, I don't necessarily have to have that conventional career and that I could pursue this more portfolio career, which uh, I'm really loving. And I pinch myself that I get to do this now. But it was a bit of an overnight success nine years in the making. Yeah, because I remember a while back you saying you had a real turning point in your career. I don't know if you actually specified what it was. Do you think it was just that time you, there was that gap where we realised, ah, there's actually a gap here in terms of women getting financial advice and learning more about finance, and you had that early advantage that you describe yes, in your blog? There were lots of factors that contributed to uh, the blog and my niche suddenly taking off. So... The Young Money blog was started at a time when people just didn't talk about 
young personal finance. It wasn't a arguably trendy topic that it is now. And I struggled for a very long time to get editors at newspapers interested in the topic. So when I pitched ideas about young personal finance, they'd tell me, well, our readers aren't young people and our readers care about pensions and property and issues that affect them, which I always thought was really myopic because... And gold and yes. wine and art. Yeah. <laughs> all yeah. things. Yeah, all, those, um, all that stuff that's really in touch with reality. And mm. I thought, this is so short-sighted because your readers have presumably, for the most part, got children. And I don't know if you've come across this, but certainly in my experience, most older people I meet are far more worried about their kids and grandkids than they are about themselves. They sense that they're going to be all right but that the next generation have a much tougher time building up their own wealth. So they wanted to see more coverage for that younger generation. And of course, if you're not writing anything for that younger generation, then they're not going to read mm -hmm. what you do. So mm -hmm. it just becomes a, a self-fulfilling prophecy. So that was very frustrating. Um, and then it was just about four years ago that I noticed this change, particularly after I published my first book, actually. There did seem to be a lot more coverage around young personal finance in the media, but also a lot more platforms as well. So obviously now podcasts have just exploded in the last few years as a way for people to um, express their views and put out information about topics that were previously really neglected by the mainstream. And mm -hmm. it's these new media like podcasts, like blogs, like vlogs, like social media that have given the younger generation more of a voice when it comes to money which in turn has just driven this interest in what's what's making us tick when it comes to our finances. You know, what are our problems? What are the products and services that we're actually using? Are we turning away from the mainstream banking industry? Or are we still using some of those products, but perhaps in a new kind of way? You know, how popular are these new digital banks? Um, what kind of issues do they present? What about robo-advice? What about cryptocurrency? You know, I hear a lot of... Oh, we're obsessed with cryptocurrency. Oh, gosh. I mean, that's, that's the only thing that, that magazine editors recently have been talking to me about. Mm. Like, really? It really, really irks me, actually, because now there's this... We've, we've swung to this extreme where a lot of editors have this very, very crass idea about what young people are interested in when it comes to money. So whilst we may not be banking and saving and investing in exactly the same way as our parents and grandparents... They treat us like a completely different species. And it's one of the reasons why I'm writing my new book, because I want to talk about how young people can invest in a way that is not too high risk, that's not too faddy. Get but, rich quick. Yeah, exactly. I'm just seeing this huge proliferation of get rich quick schemes coming from influencers who don't know what they're talking about, centered around cryptocurrency um, and very high-risk investments. So I think that now we're at the stage where we need a lot more balance and nuance in the coverage around young personal finance, and I'm hoping to do my bit to provide that. Did you by any chance listen to the Missing Crypto Queen I podcast? I did, I did. I was staggered by the number of people around the world that are so, like, all ages, mm. all backgrounds, educated people that are suckers to scams. I don't yeah. mean that in a disrespectful way, but wow, I just couldn't believe it. Well, it's just incredible how many people are spectacularly misinformed mm -hmm. about finance and how they become so susceptible to these very... Um, simplistic claims that are made by fraudsters 
And I think one coin is, is the tip of the iceberg, really, because if that one scam could have such a global reach among all these different age groups and communities, then how many other people are getting away with all sorts of ridiculous criminal claims online and taking advantage of people's basic lack of understanding about how money works, the fact that if something sounds too good to be true, it probably is. And you see it a lot with younger people as well. I think it's because they're so desperate to try and make a return because they've got their own financial problems, they're trying to get on the housing ladder, they're trying to escape their own financial situation, but they lack that financial education. They obviously are online so much now, that's where they get all their information and whilst young people are really savvy, I think we, they're more savvy than we give them credit for sometimes, um, these fraudsters can be really smart and sophisticated in how they target young people. And actually, I was really interested to see the other day um, some research which suggested that fraudsters are actually targeting young people more than any other age group now because of this combination of being able to trick people quite easily online and to blur the lines between something that looks quite official and something that's really dodgy. And the fact that young people aren't even checking their bank accounts as much as they should be. Mm -hmm. So you can get away with that fraud for longer because young people aren't spotting that crime in good time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's really worrying. And talking of fraudsters, you had a slightly more traditional fraud experience with the piggy bank. Oh, yes. <laughs> so can you briefly tell me that story? Because it kind of fits into how you got into this whole thing. Yeah, I was 23 years old and I was working as a musician in Glasgow and I never thought about money in any significant sense. Um, I certainly never thought about how to get better with my finances. But looking back now, I realised I was actually possibly obsessed with money on, on a subliminal level because I was really worried about ever being, ever being able to earn enough to leave home because I was living with my parents at that time. And that's always a bit demeaning, I suppose, when you're in your 20s, even though now, obviously, so many people are having to live at home because of the cost of housing. There's this perception that you are a failure in life unless you are financially independent at the earliest possible stage. So I felt like a bit of a failure and I really wanted to be a musician because that's what I'd invested my whole identity in. But I was trying to figure out how do I actually turn that into a viable career. So all this was going on at a time when I was getting cash in hand, really, that kind of... Um, it was that kind of earnings level for me. And I worked in this bar where I was a pianist and it, I later found out it was owned by the mafia in Glasgow. <laughs> so it was a good job I didn't play many wrong notes. Maybe they took the piggy bank because they knew oh, where you, where oh you my, lived. Oh my goodness, I never made that connection before. <laughs> oh dear, oh dear. Well, maybe they're listening. I want my piggy bank back. <laughs> um, yeah, so I was, I was working in this bar and I'd get money cash in hand, which probably should have been a sign that something was amiss. Um, and I was putting it all in this little pink piggy bank and I kept this in my bedroom at my parents' house. And I thought I was being really sensible and intelligent and really adulting properly. And then um, I came home one night and I went upstairs to my room and I realised that the house had been burgled. And of course, the piggy bank was gone because I'm sure that when the burglars saw that piggy bank with the best part of £500 in it, they must have thought all their Christmases had come at once. So it was just very weird having to give a description of the piggy bank to a police officer later that evening, you know, as a 23-year-old woman who really should be doing more with her finances mm -hmm. and keeping all her money <laughs> in a pink piggy bank. Squiggly tail, etc. Yes. So that was the moment that I realised that something had to change. Not only was I just generally feeling very anxious about my future, but this one very surreal moment 
also then became the, the trigger, really, for me to start the blog. Although my parents were very instrumental as well. My dad was a financial journalist uh, who retired a few years ago. So I had always been brought up with this understanding that money was important, but I'd lost touch with that, really. And, you know, any good parent wants to see their child go their own way. My dad never said to me from a young age, you know, why don't you be a financial journalist? You know, he always wanted me to do my own thing and do what made my heart sing. But actually, at that point, I think he understood that I... I, I I was actually quite drawn to it because I was I was talking about my worries about the financial issues I was having and I think they just sensed that I was good at writing and I could bring my own creative flair to sole subject plus nobody was really talking about it and I think you know my dad being quite canny about these things about the media generally sensed that maybe there was going to be a trend developing in that area in the future. So he kind of coaxed me into into doing something. And I thought, well, a blog seems like the best way to get started because not that many people read it. It's a safe space to learn. And if I make mistakes, it's not the end of the world. And it was early days for blogs, wasn't it? Yeah, Relatively. yeah this, this is it. Because everybody just assumes that blogs have been around for a long time now. And I suppose they were around at that time. But really, there weren't, there weren't influencers. There weren't social media superstars there certainly weren't any vlogs around at that time. So it was quite an underground thing to do. Mm-hmm. And you never went into blogging thinking you could make a career out of it. I never thought for a moment that I'd make a career out of writing a blog. And I suppose I still don't because it is itself non-profit and I just subsidise it with all the other work that I do uh, because it is a minefield. I mean, just because you can make money now from blogging and vlogging um, means you've got to be really, really careful about it. Um, and It's got- really interesting because, for example, like I know that Vestpod, the founder of Vestpod, she's yes. very open about the fact she doesn't necessarily work with brands in a certain mm. way. So there's people like you uh, and people increasingly who are working in the industry but in a very specific way so they don't blur those lines. That yes. is interesting. And also it's kind of... Is, is that hindering you then from making as much money as you could make? That's an interesting question. Yes, not, I'm not possibly. trying to get you in trouble here. <laughs> no, possibly I could make a lot more money if I was um, very focused on attracting partnerships and then using the blog as a platform for advertising, for sponsored posts, for affiliate marketing. I mean, that's huge now in blogging. And I totally respect and understand people's desire to want to make a living Uh, through blogging, because actually it has presented this new egalitarian democratic way of making money. There used to be these traditional gateways into journalism and the media. And often those roles actually went to people who knew someone, who had connections. And it could be quite unfair. It wasn't always meritocratic. And now you do have a situation where people are, are getting a name for themselves, coming from all sorts of different backgrounds, writing about money, bringing new perspectives to the industry and making money mostly through those platforms. So I'm I'm all for that in one way, but in another way, I think there is always this danger that if you write about money, you blur the lines, as you said. And the reason for that is that when you uh, write about money, you can't get away from the fact that we all have to use financial products. It's a, It's an industry that we rely on in our lives. So we end up having this love-hate relationship with it, uh, this symbiotic relationship with it that can end up being a bit toxic for us. It can end up being a bit toxic for the financial sector because, you know, that desire to help can often get clouded by the need to make profit. So 
we end up having to work with the financial industry. And, and I, I do find it a bit galling if journalists slightly pretend that they're above the fray because actually so much of the time now media is making its money from advertising. It is making money from affiliate marketing. It is in one way or another promoting the financial industry and there's nothing wrong with that. But I think we need to be honest and I think we need to have our own integrity and our own principles about what we will do and what we won't do. And I'm really clear about that. And I've built those up over time because otherwise you completely lose the trust of people, especially younger people who already feel very sceptical about the financial industry. And they know straight away if you're trying to sell them something, they, they're smart. They, they understand that that's what's going on. On that note, I'm not going to name the brand, but you'll know who I'm talking about. It's the a new kind of, I think, UK-based payment platform and they're very active on Twitter begins with a V mm. um, the way I was looking through their profile earlier and the way they interact with young people I don't know their exact demographic but mm-hmm. is incredible the amount of engagement the amount of followers they have They mm. and I ask this because I saw in your blog a warning about distinguishing between your best friends and companies that want to make money from you Yes, and I'm sure you've seen their profile and others do you have any concern about the way that brands interact with young people and like making them their friends Mm, that's a great question because we've come on light years and how financial brands interact with customers I mean in a way perhaps I, I, I would have killed to be able to say you know this financial brand is being a bit too accessible and too friendly to young people because most don't nail that marketing tone they don't know how to communicate with young people they don't know how to connect with with that younger demographic so I think on the one hand you you have to say that that it is for the most part quite encouraging that they are at least trying to they are trying to understand where young people are talking about financial brands that they are being open as well because actually you know I think that those financial brands that that are open and transparent on social media you are you feel much more comfortable calling them out when they do something wrong and i've seen that a lot with younger people feeling comfortable and confident enough to say hey you did something wrong here you let me down and so once they start being open like that online they can't back away from that then and they have to front up and deal with those concerns so you actually find that they do tend to be better on the customer service front it all depends on the products i think so One of the areas that I'm most concerned about right now is buy now, pay later, because I just believe it's it's fundamentally an unnecessary product for most young people. If you need it, you are spending too much money. You are buying too many things. That's the bottom line. And these companies want to pretend that they are solving a problem, but actually they are creating a problem. And they are creating multiple problems for young people, the most benign being that they're going to end up spending more than they really intend. But the most negative and toxic problem is that they could end up damaging their credit rating. But again, these brands are really good at communicating with young people, getting them on side, having a very friendly demeanor and tone towards them, um, which lull young people into a false sense of security about where they are at with that brand. And maybe when you are, I mean, you know, depends what age you are. I remember when I left school, you know, my my understanding about how the world worked was so much less advanced than I thought. And I didn't really understand this incredibly complex, sophisticated consumer economy that we have. It takes years. Oh, I think. yeah. I was at university. It was like credit crisis. What credit yes. crisis? Yeah. I, yeah. I was, at, I was at university at that time as well. And I just had such a 
and uh, a shallow grasp of what was really going on. It takes years for you to to kind of get your head around this stuff, but no, but young people aren't allowed that breathing space. They're plunged right into it through their phones, um, and through their social media accounts. And, and therefore, they have to start thinking objectively and independently about these brands much sooner. And like I said in that blog, you know, rather than seeing them as a friend that's helping them out with a problem, they need to see them as a company that's selling them a product. Mm-hmm. It might not seem that way, but that's what's happening. Yeah. Just be a bit healthily dose of healthy dose of cynicism. Um, so you're all about empowering people through knowledge. And I totally understand how knowledge is empowering. But what I want to ask you is, given that we live... In a post-financial crisis land where it's really hard to get on the property ladder, and I want to come back to that, um, gig economy, yada, yada, yada. How much can knowledge actually help us and empower us given the immense <laughs> obstacles without being doomsday about it that we face financially? Like, What, what barrier are we, are we trying to cross? How far can we get? That's my question. We can only get so far, but... I do believe that if we do not try to present the full picture of what is going on with young people's finances, as complex and as varied as that picture is, and as fast-changing as that picture is, if we don't try to do that, then we end up presenting, I think all too often these days, a, a, a needlessly negative picture that for some people will feel very accurate and will be a true reflection of their situation. And frankly, for other people, we'll give them a fig leaf and we'll give them a cover for them to not address what's going on in their finances and will not make them feel better about their situations. And I do believe that it is better that people try to see what they can do about their situations, even if it's not very much, than if they believe that there's absolutely no hope hope at all. And that's why I think it's it's important to provide that that balanced picture. And so with the housing crisis, that's a great example. We hear so much about how it's impossible to get on the housing ladder these days. But even if you're not that familiar with all the statistics and all the, the information surrounding the housing market, which, let's face it, most people aren't, it's, it can get very complex and dry and boring. And I mean, I don't keep up to date with absolutely all of it. I'm not a housing expert. But what I do know is that the picture does vary massively depending on where you live, how much you earn, what kind of property you're buying, um, and, you know, all sorts of factors, really, that that tend to get swept away when we see those very negative headlines. And because I myself have, you know, at various points in the past been called upon to be the kind of moaning voice of millennials... And, you know, feeling fairly happy to fulfill that role if I think that there is some genuine grievance that needs to be aired. I also think there's a big danger that we then tip over into it being just a, a mass generalisation about what's going on that then makes young people feel hopeless about their future. And I know what it's like to feel hopeless about the future. It's a horrible position to be in. Mm-hmm. And I think that everybody will be able to do something and you do also have to recognise that for some people that won't be very much at all. And you and, and be fair and honest about that, but then also say, if you can do something, here's the information that will help you weigh up what your options are. Mm-hmm. I get the impression you're an optimist. Yes. Yes, I think good. so. Okay, I think good. so, because I've seen actually... Probably have to be. Yeah, I think so. I think I've actually... I think the reason why I'm an optimist is because over the last nine years, I think things are, have got better. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it maybe it is two steps forward, one step back. You know, take, for instance, payday loans. When I first started writing about money, payday loans were the scourge of young people. Um, 
you know, borrowers everywhere being encouraged to take out these very short-term high-cost loans that were absolutely crippling their finances. Payday loans have practically fallen off a cliff because of regulation. Um, I would argue that regulation came too late in the day and it wasn't actually that well handled. So, for instance, all the compensation now that you can get for payday loans, um, you know, it doesn't provide that much consolation for people given that these firms have gone bust as a result of the regulation, can't actually pay out that compensation. Mm -hmm. So it's been mishandled, but at least that industry has been knocked on the head. And now we've got new types of debt that we have to be wary about. But there is this error that we can make that things will always be the way that they are. And some problems are more intractable in long term than others, like the housing crisis. I think we're never going to get round, uh, our heads around that. We're never going to find a, a complete solution for that. It's, you know, our, our land... Uh, our planning regulations, our our whole you know system is is so it's it's just so intractable that I just don't see a, a way forward. But that doesn't mean that that there won't be improvements in some parts of the country for some young people, and that there aren't certain products that you can use like the lifetime ISA. Although I've also been a massive um, critic of the help to buy scheme more generally because I think that takes advantage of young people's desperation for housing. Mm. So things do change and. Overall, I think things have got better. Do you think on the topic of housing, you know, there's been a bit of a backlash on social media against certain articles that say, how I got my dream home by 21. Yes. People yes. really hate that now. Why do you think that that is? Or is that a really obvious question? It's kind of judging other people's choices. You have to throw your youth away to save up for a house. I mean... We seem more focused on that, though, than we do on the fact that a lot of people have privilege and their parents can buy them a house. So mm. I think it's slightly disproportionate, but I do understand why it's annoying. Mm-hmm. I think the annoyance needs to be most reserved for those people who aren't being honest about how they're getting on the housing ladder. Yeah. So if yeah. they are having help from their parents, then you know they are duty-bound to be completely honest about that. What irks me more is that you'll sometimes see online these stories about people being able to buy these tanky properties or, you know, that they've managed to transform their first home into something that's like a show home. It, it You know, those kind of examples annoy me more and maybe that's part of the same Well, the story. interior porn kind the of thing. The interior porn, that annoys <laughs> like me a lot more than the first-time buyer porn. Um, <laughs> I mean, to be fair, some first-time buyer porn can mm. can be a lot like that. It's, mm. It is people showing off about the fact that they've managed to create this home. They're happy to throw open their doors and show everybody how, you know, uh, how perfectly you know, coordinating all their furniture is. and all about and, pot plants. Yeah, pot plants and, and millennial pink and marble and all these trends that they've managed to incorporate that make everybody... Marble. Who, yeah, mar- like marble effect, you know. Oh, maybe, or maybe oh, that's right. maybe that's very 2019. I was thinking that's a bit symmetry. Um, <laughs> like light marble. <laughs> or maybe that's very 2019. I, I, can't, I don't keep up with it, to be honest. But I think it's it's those standards of perfection and the lack of honesty that annoy me. And, and yeah, if you're not being honest about the fact you're getting help from your parents, and if you, I'd like to see more first-time buyers, you know, showing what what actually went into buying their home—the real blood, sweat, and, twi- and tears. So, you know, mm-hmm. I I got on the housing ladder when I was in my twenties. I had help from my parents. I bought an ex-local authority property um, in, in an Kent, area, wasn't it? 
Uh, no, no, this this is in London. Oh, okay. So I had to make all sorts of compromises, mm. including living with my brother, uh, who I get on extremely well with. But, you know, again, that's not something that's available to everybody. Uh, you know, the ability to combine my savings and his savings. Um, so, and and we didn't have any money to do it up. You know, we we only just kind of renovated our bathroom last year. It was so grotty. Every time I went in there, I felt so <laughs> didn't know if you'd come depressed. out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was just so depressing that bathroom. Oh, we when all we know had, that. When we have money to actually do it up, mm-hmm. I felt that was when I felt like an adult. Not when I um, not when I actually got the place because I knew that was. Um, that was me having made compromises and trade-offs and choices. And first few years of getting on the housing ladder, yeah, I didn't go on holiday and I didn't, well, I mean, you know, I went on some very cheap holidays. Uh, but I didn't I didn't live it large at all and I'm still not really living it large. And it's about choices and, and I don't think anybody should be shamed into, into buying because that's the accepted, you know, goal that we should all have in life. And, and I'm definitely all for removing that stigma from renting on the blog. I, I make it really clear, life is just not just about trying to get on the housing ladder because it's it's really not for everyone. Mm-hmm. And especially if you're using things like the Help to Buy scheme, which some people swear by and think is marvellous, then fine if it's worked for them. But, but for the most part, I think it's not the right option. I think if it takes longer and you buy somewhere that's a bit grottier, that's better than buying one of these turnkey homes that's not actually what it seems that's got these rising grand rents that is built to a terrible standard um you know all these problems that come with help to buy oh and the equity loan at the end which is huge which people haven't really thought about or factored in yet but it but those equity loans are going to start you know um having to be paid off soon and people are going to get a really nasty shock when that happens so there's lots of pitfalls in buying property and i Mm. think we should we should normalize renting Maybe not to the extent that we make people feel okay about the fact that they're in a grim situation with renting or gloss over the fact that over long term, buying does generally tend to be more cost effective than renting. If it was better regulated, like in Germany, we'd all be happy urban utopia renters and wouldn't have. <laughs> but anyway, another topic. Um, talking of property, you're writing this book about investing. Yes. So tell me, how does property feature in that? And more importantly, just why has this come about and are more young people investing? I think more young people are investing, but they're not necessarily investing in an informed way. Yes, I am going to cover property because how can you not? I talk about it as, uh, you know, the white elephant in, in the book that you would have to address. Um, and everything that I just said there is really the tone that I'm going to adopt in that particular chapter where I say there is absolutely nothing wrong with renting. You have to think very carefully about buying. It's a big commitment. You've got to be, you know, settled. And when I say settled, I don't mean, you know, necessarily have a partner and want to have kids, but just feel a bit more grounded in your life. You know you're going to be working in a certain place. You feel happy about that area. You think it's got a promising outlook and so on. I think you've got to make that clear that it's a really, really big commitment. And then I go into the research about how generally it is more cost effective buying than renting in the long term, but then whether or not you should invest for your first home, because that's been a really fascinating development, actually, in the last few years. You know, we are seeing lots of investment schemes aimed at renters who can't get on the property ladder yet, um, but want to make a, a greater return. So they're kind of taking advantage, really, of young people associating property with being a good investment, but not really being able to buy into it directly, which is really interesting. But then also, should you actually invest for that first deposit? Because now, on average, 
it is taking longer than five years. And traditionally, the advice has been, you shouldn't invest in the stock market if you want your money within five years. Well, for a lot of young people, they're thinking, well, it could take me a decade. So what have I got to lose? But I think it is still a really, it's still it's still a very careful, uh, What's what? how should I describe it? It's, it's a, you've got to think very carefully and, and, and you've got to go into it with your eyes open. You've got to really be sure that, that you feel comfortable taking that risk. And if need be, you've got to be able to stomach the idea that you could lose your money because that's the reality with investing. So the book, I wanted it to really demystify the world of investing and make it clear that it is something that we all have to understand because savings rates are so low and I don't think they're going to get higher anytime soon. I, I don't see us going back to a world that our parents were in where interest rates were above 10%. I just don't think that's <laughs> going to happen. I think they're going to remain really, really low. So younger people are going to want a higher return, but they need to know what they're doing and they need to know what all the different options are. They need to understand that cryptocurrency is not really a currency, it's an asset and a really volatile one at that. And then, yeah, they need to understand what their goals are, how much risk they need to take and, um, and how they assess their own risk appetite and so on. There's just so much to unpack. And mm. I thought there's not really any book or resource out there that tackles this stuff in a, in a friendly and relatable way that isn't going to be daunting and, and full of jargon. Uh, and, and also, I'm independent. I'm not, you know, coming at it from a commercial angle. This is all the stuff that I've learned over the years. And I just wanted to really share it with people. Yeah, I really look forward to reading it. I'm sure I'll learn something. Um, when I was looking through your blogs, this would call out to me as I am a freelancer, female free freelancer, but I absolutely loved your double it rule. Oh, thank you. <laughs> it inspired me. Great. Have you I, tried it? Well, I'm going to. Excellent. So can you explain what it is and maybe mention the circumstances, perhaps you wouldn't use it. But sure. Also, sure. can we use the double it rule right from the get-go before getting to, say, your level in your field? That's an excellent question. I was a tad worried when I published that blog that it might come across as a bit out of touch or that people might say, well, it's all very well for you because you've now achieved a level of success where that's possible and you're, you know, in a field where you're not completely unique but there aren't that many people who do what you do. I didn't explain it, so double it as in ask for double your Yes, yeah, so, so so the rule is that the rule that I try to follow now is that what, whatever fee you are minded to charge for any work that you do, double it and see what happens. Um, and this comes from a lot of really painful experiences in the past where I would just be so grateful to get any work in this area, especially as a freelancer, um, that if people set a rate, you would just accept that rate. And if anybody asked you to set a rate, you would just err on the side of caution because you thought, well, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. And that's true, but it's really important for every freelancer to realise when they can get out of that place and they need to try and get out of that place as soon as possible. And of course, that's about creating your own value as a freelancer and finding those things that make you unique and, and give you an edge. And as soon as you are starting to do that and people are coming to you, and it will happen to any freelancer that works really hard and does find that, that niche, um, then it's really important that you don't uh, undersell yourself for too long when you start when you're starting out it's it's understandable and inevitable but I suppose I was still underselling myself way past the point where 
where I needed to. And there was a particular turning point a couple of years ago. I um, I do radio days sometimes with brands and it's just really going into a studio a bit like this and talking about an issue uh, and it, it will be to, you know, raise awareness of a campaign that a brand is doing and so on. And I realised um, when I went for lunch with a PR contact and I said to him what my rate was, he said, you do know that you should be charging double that. And that's what everyone does. And even people who've got you know, way less time on the clock than you and have got way less of a profile than you, they're charging double what you just quoted me. And honestly, <laughs> I just want, I, I wanted to go home and scream into a pillow when he told me that. I couldn't believe it. And I think it really made me think about why I was doing that. And, and I do genuinely believe that women are more inclined to do it than men. And I think that women who are freelancing now are at particular risk of undervaluing themselves because why else do we have a self-employed gender pay gap? I mean, women go self-employed ostensibly to try and overcome these inequalities in the workplace. And what we find is that actually a woman, a woman can take some of those inequalities and that sense of inferiority with them when they go freelance. And so they end up undercharging even when they have no good reason to. So do you ever get approached now to, to be asked to do free work that you're like, nope. Yep, all the time still. And it is really hard because it. I think it happens because now I'm speaking in contexts where they're not used to dealing with a freelancer and I'm, you know... I'm, I'm, I'm blazing a trail and I don't want to sound arrogant when I say that, but certain conferences will only ever hear from company people and they'll go and they'll do their very corporate presentation and they'll do it on the company time and therefore they've become accustomed to everybody offering that for free no matter that actually the content isn't that great and it's obviously incredibly commercial and of questionable value uh, when they ask somebody who is an independent you know self-employed expert who can bring something really original and new to the table they want that they want all that fresh insight but they don't often want to pay for it. And therefore, it's almost a process of educating everybody that you come into contact with about the fact that, look, this is not the only model. Now we have people like me coming into these situations with so much to offer. If you've got, a, if you've got the budget, you've got to put some of that budget towards paying the speakers. And a lot of the time, it's just about having the confidence to say that and not being afraid to walk away if, if need be. And I think that's it. It's Because you're almost, not losing anything. If you walk away from mm, something, you you wouldn't have been paid anyway. So I guess no, you're not losing money in that respect. No. Uh, the only tricky area, of course, is the media. So now, you know, the BBC has got this remit to have a 50-50 uh, female-male uh, representation when it comes to experts. So naturally, that means you're in demand, particularly if you're a woman who can talk about finance and business. Um, but, you know, I've been asked so many times to, to basically be a free researcher, not necessarily for the BBC, for, for different broadcasters, um, and, and to offer up all my, you know, insight and, and knowledge for nothing. And again, it's about telling them no. And in fact, if someone tells me, if someone asks me to come and talk about female financial empowerment, and I'm not getting paid, I mean, how hypocritical is that? I can't possibly consent to that anymore. And with the uh, International Women's Day coming up, yeah. all these events about it. <laughs> all these free uh, events are going to come, all these all these invites to speak at events for free are going to come in. And, and, and I just got my policy very clear now that, um, you know, if especially if you're charging people uh, to come and see what you're doing if you're an organisation, you know, but you've got to have 
a pro bono part of your work and I do and I I was asked to do something for Girls Friendly Society next month and I and I jumped at the chance and you know I would never expect payment for that and I think you have to protect your time outside of pro bono you have to charge for that time to allow you to be able to do the stuff that's genuinely charitable we might get to the point where we say we don't work for free on our email bios minus the charity stuff in brackets yeah yeah that's a whole other world but anyway that's it's so tough though isn't it because i mean like there are so many things which are good for your for your profile and 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 they are you know about contact building and you can't just be commercially driven the whole time i guess it's just about appreciating all the different tiers of work that you that you can do and how much work can go into say preparing a speech or a presentation or even loads. a media appearance oh, loads absolutely loads yeah. yeah that's been really inspiring so um, i'm going to go away and practice that good well but, let um, me know how you go and i really enjoy well i really look forward to um, reading your book as well oh, so thank, thank you so much for joining me thanks rachel Stay tuned as next I am asking Hayley Milhouse, Head of Advisor Services at Open Money, for a few practical tips on why a pension is so important. Understanding the importance of saving for your future and how you can do that with pensions has never been more important, particularly as the pension landscape has changed significantly over the last few years. So it's never been more important because now for the majority of people, the responsibility of saving for our retirement falls with us as individuals. Now, there are things that have come into play, such as auto-enrolment, which means that we do have some help along the way. So what that means is that for uh, every employer in the UK, um, they must put certain staff into workplace pension scheme. Now, at the moment, the minimum contribution is a total of 8% of your qualifying earnings. So I've got a little bit of an example here of how that actually works. So for a female, um, at 25, uh, earning £25,000 a year, that would equate to a monthly pension contribution of just over £125. But actually, the, uh, the amount that that female would contribute is only half of that at just over £62. The other half comes from a combination of tax relief from the government and an employer contributions. Now, whether you're employed or self-employed, the earlier you start saving, the better. Now, there's many um, apps out there, some information uh, by the government. And what's really key as we move forward into this different landscape is that people really engage with their pension savings and understand what it actually means. Again, this will also help um, in other areas of, of financial understanding, particularly with investing and help to grow in confidence and gain experience overall. Thank you for listening to An Honest Account. You can tweet us at honest underscore account underscore and we're also on Instagram. You can email us at contact at anhonestaccount.co.uk. Please rate and review and subscribe. It really helps other people find us. And thanks again to our sponsor, Open Money, as well as Haley Millhouse. And see you next time.